Hello and welcome to a brand new podcast. The Jolt from Foresight Climate and Energy will hit the airwaves on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. I'm Sam Morgan, your host. First, I'd better answer a pretty important question. What is the Jolt? The Jolt is our brand new series coming to you three times a week that will bring you bite-sized updates on climate and energy stories from around the world, as well as a deeper dive into the story of the day. We'll be talking to special guests to help you understand these stories, and we are delighted to have you along for the ride. We live in a world where every aspect of our lives is impacted in some way or another by climate and energy issues, be it the food we eat or the air we breathe, the lights that illuminate our homes or the vehicles that get us where we need to go. The shift to a green economy touches pretty much everything. None of this is exclusive to Europe, of course. The entire planet is going through this transformation. Sure, everyone is at a different stage in the journey, but an irreversible change in how we live our lives is underway everywhere. It is no exaggeration that we are on the cusp of a new era in human civilization. Whether or indeed when that will be one fully powered by sustainable energy is perhaps the most pressing question of our time. Given the abundance of interesting and important developments shaping society, we at Foresight Climate and Energy thought it would be invaluable to bring you more of what we're good at on a more regular basis, informative journalism and deep insights on these crucial and fascinating issues. So you had better start believing in energy transition stories, dear listener. You're in one. Let's kick things off by taking a look at the stories making the news at the moment. Europe's search for a new climate chief reaches a crunch point. The US plans to issue a record low number of oil and gas offshore leases. And Japan's government agrees to make electricity data public. First up, Members of the European Parliament will hold a hearing with the Dutch politician that is in line to be the EU's new head of climate policy. Wopke Herkstra, who until recently was the Netherlands' foreign minister, got the nod from his government to replace Franz Timmermans, a long-time Brussels official who has quit his job as European commissioner to run in an upcoming general election. Herkstra needs to convince MEPs that his past ties to fossil fuel firms and his record in government, where he opposed the closing of the Netherlands' main North Sea gas field, should not rule him out of the job. The hearing starts later today in Strasbourg. Tomorrow, MEPs will also interview Slovak official Maros Šefčovic, who is in line to take over Timmermans' wider responsibilities for the EU Green Deal. There is a risk that the two hearings could become entangled uh, as part of a grand bargain, between rival political groups to get their candidates the green light. Uh, tune back into the jolt next time to find out how it all went down. Second, the United States government plans to issue a record low number of offshore leases for fossil fuel exploration in the coming years, in what has been labelled as a compromise that makes nobody happy. Just three sales will be held in 2025, 2027 and 2029 in the Gulf of Mexico, completely rewriting proposals by Donald Trump's former administration, which wanted to offer 47 sales along nearly the entirety of the US's coastline. Industry has criticised the plan and warns it will jeopardise US energy dominance, while environmental groups have also slammed Joe Biden's strategy, calling it a missed opportunity to get out of oil and gas. The White House says that the leases are in keeping with the Inflation Reduction Act agreement, which requires a certain number of offshore sales in order for separate permits to be issued for wind farms. Three was the very minimum that could be offered, uh, but legal challenges from industry and Republican lawmakers are likely, 
while environmental groups may also resort to the courts. Biden's difficult preparation for his re-election bid in 2024 continues in earnest. And third thing, the Japanese government has decided to open up electricity data collected by smart meters to corporate interests. Previously, the data was only available for utilities. Uh, Japan wants to nearly halve its emissions by 2030 and get to net zero by 2050, with smart meter use seen as a powerful tool in its climate policy arsenal. For a fee, companies like Toshiba will be able to access information on power consumption and usage recorded by Japan's nearly 80 million meters and offer services like energy efficiency measures. Following a smaller regional deployment later this year, the new system will go nationwide in 2024 with one day old data on offer. Real-time tracking and information is expected by 2025. Lastly, the European Union's new carbon border tax, or CBAM, went live on the 1st of October. As this is such a weighty issue, I thought it would be the perfect topic for the Jolt's debut deep dive on a news story making waves around the world. So let's get stuck in. The European Union has a brand new policy in place that sits nicely at the nexus of energy, climate, trade and transport. It's the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM. Uh, for those of you that have not heard of this particularly jargon-heavy EU policy, sit back and relax and I'll do my best to sum it up. The European Union is afraid that its ambitious green policies like renewable energy targets and carbon pricing will spark deindustrialization. In a nightmare, albeit unlikely scenario, Europe's big manufacturing titans in the steel, iron or cement sectors decide that it would simply be cheaper to keep polluting outside of the EU's jurisdiction and import their wares instead. Domestic businesses go bankrupt because of an unfair playing field and industry sours on the green transition. Bad stuff. This is how EU taxation chief Paolo Gentiloni summed up the new policy when he announced it back in 2021. I think this is another um, demonstration of the potential leading role of the EU at global level. The, the rationale is to address the risk of carbon leakage that could undermine our efforts if uh, production uh, is moved elsewhere to avoid EU carbon pricing. So CBAM is basically a carbon border tax, the type of which has been pondered for years and which is finally somewhat of a reality. When fully active, it will slap charges on certain imported products that do not meet certain sustainability standards. If a steel importer is trading metal made using coal power and the country it was made in does not price emissions sufficiently, then CBAM is going to get you. Charges will be linked to the EU's emissions trading price and there will be complex methodology put in place to calculate how much importers exactly owe. So why am I kicking off the jolt with this topic? Well, CBAM was activated on the 1st of October when its initial transition period finally kicked in. That means there is no going back, all the behind doors talks are done, the political mind games are finished, and it's time to see whether this thing actually works. During this two and a bit years long soft opening, importers of steel, aluminium, iron, cement, fertilizer, hydrogen, electricity, and some other precursors will have to monitor and verify their emissions so that the EU can start building a baseline. That means when CBAM ramps up in 2026, there will be plenty of data with which to make decisions. How carbon intensive is Indian steel, for example? Is China's emissions trading system pricing iron exports enough? Is the UK's carbon price high enough to exempt it from charges? Thousands of questions like this will have to be answered by the end of the transition period. 
To get some expert opinion, I asked Elisabetta Cornago, a senior research fellow at the Centre for European Reform, who is an expert in climate and energy policy, whether she thinks that CBAM will trigger other countries to do more on climate. Well, I think that that would be sort of the, the, the pragmatic response. And I think that it's, it's a two-pronged response, right? Uh, a two-pronged and ratchet effect, I think, as, as you call it. On one hand, on the business side, so businesses, because they will be exposed then to, you know, the cost of CBAM, um, they will have an incentive to, to try and reduce the, the embedded emissions of their production, so to pay lower CBAM fees. But then there's a second, I guess, uh, decarbonization effect that we are um, expecting to see, and that's at the government level. So governments of countries that trade high quantities of, of CBAM goods with the EU have an interest in, in setting up uh, carbon pricing schemes or tightening I guess the rules around their carbon pricing schemes is that if they already exist, so that it mirror uh, the the EU ETS price and and the rationale I guess behind this, uh, the reason why they have an interest in coming up with their own carbon price is to ensure that they retain the revenue in house as opposed to letting the EU pocket CBAM revenues um, further down the line or you know on the other side of the border I guess. So CBAM has already provoked plenty of reactions around the world because the EU is an extremely lucrative market for manufacturers of the products that will be slapped with new charges. India, in particular, has been very vocal about its misgivings about CBAM, and its government has even threatened to launch a challenge at the World Trade Organization. Recently, tempers have cooled slightly, with Industry Minister Piyush Goyal insisting that dialogue is progressing well and that India will use the transition period to prepare businesses, ramp up decarbonisation, and perhaps broker exemptions with Brussels for SMEs. China is watching with interest and has started preparing its businesses for CBAM, while the likes of Canada, Japan, South Korea and the United Kingdom have all begun consulting on whether to set up their own carbon border taxes, either to replicate what the EU is doing for its domestic industries, or to at least exempt their exporters from the European system. I asked Elisabetta whether she thinks the bluster and outrage at CBAM from trading partners will translate into actual problems for Europe. But I think there are sort of several possible, you know, sort of diplomatic reactions to these. The first one is the confrontational one, uh, which we have seen from from some partners, as you mentioned, India sort of uh, point to to WTO concerns and and threaten to to, to go ahead and uh, file formal complaints uh, within this forum. A second type of reaction, I think, which we are likely to see as, as you know, implementation uh, gets started is a more constructive one. And that, that would mean engaging with the, commis- with the commission, providing feedback to define, I guess, carbon accounting and reporting methods that work for all and then simpl- simplify the life of, of their own uh, you know, businesses that trade with the EU. And I guess a, a, the third one, which is something that, that we, we hinted at in, 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 in our previous uh, you know, discussion is the pragmatic one. Set up your own carbon pricing scheme domestically and seek there, I'd say, in fact, intel from the EU on how to do that in a, in a way that makes sense. Because it, we know that you know, setting up carbon pricing uh, schemes like the EU ETS is not exactly a smooth business. It has taken, well, roughly two decades to the EU to get that you know, about, about right. And so I think EU trading partners can, in fact, learn a lot from, from the European experience in fine-tuning and, and you know, getting the design right of these 
uh, very ambitious policy to make sure that they can, again, retain the revenues associated with carbon pricing at home and use those for their own decarbonization plans. I also managed to catch up with Dan Molesky, CBAM lead at Redshore Advisors, a consultancy, and he reminded us that the United States will, of course, play a role here. I believe in the next few years there'll be a lot of interesting debates over fair trade rules in regards to uh, the EU CBAM. So um, let's take, for example, the, the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. Um, now, let's say I'm a U.S. aluminum company, and either directly or indirectly, I get benefited uh, from Uncle Sam through the IRA uh, to help me decarbonize. Uh, now, it's great. Uh, as a result, I will have less embedded emissions in my aluminum. However, let's say I end up exporting some of that aluminum into the EU, accessing the, the European markets. Uh, my counterparts and competitors in the EU might say that that is unfair because the U.S. government is subsidizing some of the decarbonization. Um, as a result, uh, they might believe that can be violating uh, some of the fair trade uh, rules we have. Businesses that are exposed to CBAM risk being caught napping by the new policy. And it's not just non-EU firms that might get a rude wake-up call, Dan explains. Um, no, it's, it's, uh, it's not just an issue when it comes to non-EU countries. Uh, the infamous Deloitte report back in August, uh, it was, I believe, 60% of German importers are unaware of CBAM. And a lot of the conversations I'm having, some folks know what the acronym stands for, but they don't know much behind that. Um, they don't know how this is going to be impacting the competitive landscape, how it's going to be shifting supply of certain products and some of the more com comprehensive portions of this legislation. You know, transition period. Some folks are under the belief that penalties will not be dealt if there are grievances on the reporting aspect. They're unaware of what the consequences of uh, not totally knowing uh, the thoroughness of this policy might be. So uh, it's not just uh, non-EU countries that are concerningly lacking the uh, confidence for this policy, but it's also companies within the EU. That point speaks to the fact that businesses do not operate in a bubble. Even EU-based manufacturers and companies will be impacted by CBAM because many of them will need to import goods and wares that will be subject to charges. I think you're probably beginning to get the picture that CBAM is a mighty beast indeed. This is far from the complete story, of course. All of the true impacts on global trade and climate policies are still yet to be revealed. You can easily make the argument that it will be one of the main stories to keep an eye on in the coming years. Foresight will be there to follow and report on those developments, of course, and we've already made a start on it. Check the show notes for my recently published deep dive article on the policy, as well as a link to a recording of our flagship podcast, What Matters, where we were lucky enough to have one of the architects of CBAM on as a guest. I hope today's overview has whetted your appetite to learn more about this story. Thank you for joining me for the first ever Jolt by Foresight Climate and Energy. I'll be back on Wednesday for another episode. In the meantime, we would love to hear what you think of this new series. It would be great to hear your feedback as we want to offer our loyal listeners and subscribers the very best. Check out the show notes for how to get in contact with us. Thoughts on the format, the topics under discussion, and what you'd really like to hear in future episodes are all welcome, so please don't be shy. If you really like the episode and want to share it, then please spread the word via social media, email, word of mouth, or post-it note. Uh, my thanks to everyone behind the scenes at Foresight for helping to bring this inaugural episode together, and also to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of The Jolt. Thank you.